I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf. When the human mind is either challenged or introduced to new ideas or thought-provoking concepts, does the brain step back to its original state? Now, that's the question I have for the book, A Beautiful Constraint, written by two marketing and brand-building experts. Their position is that you don't eliminate the constraint, you leverage it. And the heart of the book provides seven suggestions in how to turn a constraint into something that is beautiful. We're going book club in this conversation. I've asked Willie Donaldson to join me. You may know that name because my interview with him some time ago, it's the most downloaded show in our podcast catalog. Willie and I will be unpacking some of the fascinating concepts and stories in A Beautiful Constraint. And that's coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. Willie, before we get into the book, A Beautiful Constraint, let's just start with a very basic question. What is a constraint? Well, it's a great question, Mark. And and I think, you know, we we tend to want to say it's it it is an actual definable element. I would argue, and systems thinking would argue, that that it's almost anything is constrained and and almost anything is limitless. And so often it is just a mental um, constraint, but it's something that that whether it's mental, physical, quantitatively seems to to impede progress is kind of how I think of them. Um, And I and I extend that knowledge because again it doesn't have to be a hard physical stop it might be a mental constraint that keeps you from doing something important to your organization we have no i don't have a hard count but i know we have people who are theory constraint students who are practitioners mm-hmm. and goldrat even has a definition and if you don't mind i'm going to read it willie he calls it anything within yeah. a process, which, by the way, this 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 is in alignment with what you just said. But he calls it anything within a process that impedes increased throughput, which is the process of turning raw material into a finished good. And by the way, that raw material could be in professional services. Uh, it could be in an e-commerce company where, you're t- to me, the raw material is the product before it gets sold to the end customer. In this book, we're not really talking about Goldratt's definition. It's a different definition. What was the definition you picked up on with constraints in this book called A Beautiful Constraint? Well, I, I think, again, it goes back to my broader definition of it. It's anything that that seems to impede your progress. And the the, the distinction I would make from theory of constraints is that may not always be dealing just with throughput. Right. It, it, ultimately, that's what we measure in business, but it may be within a department or it may be within a, a not-for-profit. And, and so I think that's the expanded um, definition that I like to look at. The authors are Adam Morgan and Mark Barton. They are the founders of Eat Big Fish, and they are... I want to use the word exceptional speakers. I've listened to Adam probably on about 15, 16, 17 interviews. I've, he, he's not on a lot of videos on YouTube, 
but they are excellent. He's an excellent speaker. And so these are marketing guys, and they are very successful in the marketing space. The way he, he and by the way, he, uh, Adam's going to agree with you on everything you just said, but contrasting with TOC, Goldratt's view on constraints, he says, and I'm going to quote him in the book, our interest, though, is not eliminating constraints, but in positively leveraging them. And then he goes on to say, by making a constraint beautiful, we mean seeing it as an opportunity, not a punitive restriction, and using it as a stimulus to see a new or better way of achieving our ambition. Do you think these authors nailed that? Did they crystallize that thinking in this book? Absolutely. I think they did. And and I that's what I love about this book, Mark, is the fact that they're they're turning you from a victim of woe is me, I can't get this done to no, let me think about this differently. Let me take a different look at it. Let me turn the, the puzzle over and see if I can't come up with a better way. So to me, it, it themes in a lot of the things you and I have talked about in design thinking and systems thinking that just says, look at the problem differently and keep a, an open mind to doing things differently. I would also add, I want to make it very, very clear, this is not... By the way, this is not light reading. I, I don't know if the high dopamine CEO is going to read this from cover to cover. The, they're going to love the ideas that we're going to talk about, but they may not read it from cover. They may get fatigued going through it. I mean, there is a, there is a lot of there's a lot of content, a lot of stories, a lot of examples. But I want to make it very clear, this is not a Waterman Peters type book where there's this in, the insinuation that, hey, this is an empirical study. No, they stayed up front. This is based on 16 years of, of research. Now, I think this book was published in 2017 or thereabouts, so you have to add a few years to that. And they've worked with over 200-plus brand owners, and it's been more since then. And they even state in some other interviews that, hey, we, we could be wrong. Please let us know where we need to add to our framework or subtract from it. So they're transparent. They're not trying to say this is the end-all, be-all of constraint thinking. But I'll just say that the content in here is very, very uh, provocative. One thing I did like about the book is I just said I've listened to Adam Morgan, and he's the one I've heard the most. This is one of those books where just give me the big ideas. Uh, there is a a book club I'm in. It's called Next Big Ideas Club, or at least that's the domain name. And the nice thing about listening to an author is they can dispel their big ideas in less than one hour. And it's a it's a cool way to read the book. Now, typically, I will read the book before I listen to them uh, on their on their platform that they're doing this for. This is a book where I think. Just give me the one hour presentation and you're going to get it. You don't necessarily mm -hmm. need to read the book. Again, this book is dense with examples and stories. Am I being too harsh, Willie? No, I, I think you're absolutely right, Mark. It's, um, 
you know, I'll tell you a funny anecdote. A mentor of mine years ago said that most business texts are great Harvard business articles, reasonably good short stories and horrible novels. Yes. Right? And it's just can you get to the point? And I think part of that is readers. We, we all want the, the easy button. We Just give me the, the top 10 things. So you have to be disciplined to go through it. And you also have to be pretty broad in your thinking uh, and your experience level to be able to absorb all these ideas. So it's it's pretty dense and takes some time to, to warm up to, shall we say. Big idea number one, and this is all in the context of a constraint, the relationship between ambition and the constraint is the first big idea I gained out of this book. And he talks about the three types of people or stages that we can go in. You remember those three stages that we can go into? And you just mentioned one of them a couple of minutes ago. Yes. They're, you know, they talk about the, the first is being a victim. Oh, woe is me. I, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time, whatever the constraint is. And then if you can get to the point where you, you're a neutralizer, you just you, you don't move beyond, but you you don't you seem to be stuck. But you've got to get beyond that to a transformer. And to me, the transformative language they use that's the the one of the great gems that comes out of this bookmark is can if rather than we can't. Can you get your organization and yourself to get to we can if we do this or we did that or can we go test ideas that get us through that and that that. That language starts to take you from a victim and just being in neutral to a transformative mindset that that opens up ideas and, and opportunities, in my opinion. You may start out with victim thinking, and then you become the neutralizer, which we do need to define, and then the transformer. So it could be that you it could be that transformer you just described, Willie, could start out in the beginning, oh well, it's me. I, how are we going to do this? How can we pull this off? Uh, by the way, that middle stage, the neutralizer, I had to keep looking it up, but he defines the neutralizer. I'll paraphrase it. It's the person who says, no, we're not going to get rid of the constraint. We're just going to maybe redefine the ambition to get around that constraint. So that'd be the neutralizer. They're not ignoring it. Yeah, and that's that's the that's the better, more positive version of it. The, the dangerous version that I would caution the listeners on is the neutralizer who changes the goal. Oh, again, starts sloughs more towards the victim in, in just living with it rather than trying to get around the constraint. Um, you know, we see it all the time where organizations slough back to a level of performance and, and you, you you don't challenge the status quo. That's the danger in the neutralizer role. Are you, are you continuing to move forward towards a transformative experience or do you just get trapped in that n sort of never, never land? The question I have on the transformer stage or transformer thinking, is that something that can be learned because, again, this may be a bad or a negative bias, but some people who have that victim mindset, sometimes they don't get out of it. And it's like, is that just the way you were born? <laughs> uh, or can this truly be taught to go from victim to neutralizer to transformer? I think it can be taught. But that, that being said, it, it's a continuum, right? Some people are really creative and transformative and to the extent that they're bad. They want to transform even the good and make it 
different than, than it needs to be. So I think anything can be taught. And a lot of that comes with awareness. And we were talking earlier in all of my corporate universities, we had a, a module on um, cr you know, critical thinking and understanding your own mind. We did a lot of work in personality assessment tools so that people understood where their limitations came and how they might think about it. Because that person who is a victim but loves process and wants things to be precise can be very, very helpful once you make the breakthrough in, in making it repetitive. So you need all of the mind shares that you can the, the biggest form in, in my world was awareness. And then we also, in selecting, we look for people with neuroplasticity that could could really understand their minds and that self-awareness and then use them effectively. So the authors call constraints. They can be beautiful. And one way of dealing with these constraints is start with the relationship between ambition and constraint. Now, I'm going to get a little bit out of order but they bring up another big idea, which I find fascinating. We were talking about this before we hit record, the concept of path dependence, path dependence. What, do you, what is your interpretation of path dependence in the context of constraints? Well, the, you know, the, the classic definition I would give it is, you know, we're stuck in a rut and you, you just, you've done it this way forever. This is the way we've always done it. Um, you know, an example that you've heard me talk about before is, you know, bringing in an executive from, you know, a named organization that's always done product development this way. And, and they, they start prosecuting without learning the way that you want to do it or the way that you do it. So we all get path dependent. And again, it gets back to that mindset of awareness of are you getting stuck in that rut? Uh, because they, the path dependence can be process driven. It could be software driven or it could be just men mentally driven, in my opinion. The interesting poem that they brought up, and I, I'm going to be transparent. I did not know about this poem. It's called The Calf Path by Sam Foss. Again, I'm being transparent. I did not know it. In fact, when I started reading it, I'd never recalled reading it before. Had you heard of it? I had not. It, but you should read it for the group if we have time. It's about a 10-minute read, but can I read the first yeah, that's right. three, four stanzas? Oh. It, by the way, I'm not, a po I'm not into poetry. Are they called stanzas? <laughs> is a paragraph a stanza? So here, here's how the first part goes. And by the way, this is really, this is good. One day through the primeval wood, a calf walked home as good calves should, but made a trail all bent askew, a crooked trail as all calves do. Since then, 300 years have fled, and I infer the calf is dead. Now we get into the next section. But still he left behind his trail and thereby hangs my moral tale. And then he goes on, and it is a very good poem. In fact, I did not know I liked poetry. I liked that poem. I liked the ending, mm -hmm. and I did some homework. A lot of business people who are consultants, they use this poem as a, hey, this is an example. This is an analogy of what happens when you get into, this is the way we've always done it, thinking. So... Mm -hmm. Next question related to this path dependence. How do you know you have this path dependence? 
Well, it's a great question. And, and I'll tell you what we used to do in my organizations is we set aside um, days of the of the month to just challenge our most firmly held beliefs and, and challenge, I call them white space events. Just what what would we change differently? What's working? What's not working? Um, and, and I find that not enough organizations do that. You know, how would we completely change everything we're doing? We talked earlier about um, De Bono's six thinking hats. Put on a hat to attack your ideas. Put on a hat to could we do this better? It goes back to that creativity and 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 being open to changing things constantly, I think, is important. The other example I can think of is in my own financial management career. I My first credit department that I ran, it was about a $20 million on average accounts receivable portfolio. So not huge. So we're talking small business, but I met with our AR manager every Wednesday, every week from three o'clock to five o'clock. If I were gone for on vacation, I, I mean, that was delegated. We never met We had 52 meetings a, a year. And what we did to minimize AR, and to me, it was deadly effective. If you were one day past due, you got a phone call. I did not allow emails. And by the way, that we're talking 2003, 2004, circa 2003, four. I did not allow my people to do emails. The person before me did, and they wondered why they weren't effective. So one of the ways we got around with, with improved AR was you call them and then you also find out why. And we'll do, hey, do we need mm-hmm. to change your terms to an extra five days? We usually didn't like that because then they'd be another day late after that. But the question I kept asking our owners was, you may think we're doing a good job. You may like the results you're getting. But how can we, how could we eliminate that $20 million portfolio of AR to begin with? Let's make it to where we always get paid up front. So to me, that is an example of just thinking in extremes, either think it to the far yep. right or the far left. And so that may be another idea to get out of a path pendants. Well, and I'll tell you an interesting story from my background. I was being approached to join a board uh, and I went to my very first board meeting. I'd been recommended um, uh, to the owner founder and in an industry that I was somewhat familiar with, not not deeply involved in. And they were singing their praises about a particular number of how they this turnover rate that they did. And I just asked a very silly, I was like, is that really a great number? Because in, in my experience, it sounded pedestrian. Anyway, long story short, I didn't get back, asked back to the next board meeting <laughs> or the next one. And I thought, okay, well, that's the end of it. Then the, the owner called me and he said, well, I have to tell you, I was really angry, we, you know, because we, we worked hard on that number. But your friend who recommended you told me to go look. And I looked. And sure enough, as I looked at other industries outside of ours, we weren't even in the in the game. And, and we've revolutionized that. Please come on our board. <laughs> Please come on our board. And I think we get trapped. We believe our own press releases. And and so having outside eyes that will, will challenge you and, and your most firmly held beliefs, time set aside to challenge the way you're currently doing things is important. It's one of the bits of advice I give clients and also my students is as you graduate, here are these, you know, 22 year old kids, I still call them kids, 
but they've got different eyes than ours. They see the world differently. Use that. When you go to your 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 job, look at the world differently. And oh, by the way, owner founders, ask those people how they view your business and how they view things. It, it just helps to 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 hopefully get rid of those constraints. One of my favorite stories in the book is when the Audi chief engineer asks a team of other engineers, how can we win Le Mans without going faster? Pause. Someone then says, we'll take fewer pit stops. That propelling question led to a seemingly non-impactful solution, but it led to the introduction of diesel engines for the first time ever in Le Mans history. And their team, I think, would go on to win the next three years in succession. So, Willie, what do you think of this concept of asking propelling questions? Well, I, I think there, there are two. One, some of these get brought to you directly. I mean, one of my favorite movie scenes that, that a, a approaches constraints is in Apollo 13 when they find that the filter from the module won't fit. And the guy comes in and goes, we have to make this fit into that using only this. You talk about a great, you know, sort of description of, of constraints. But I think part of that is that's one that's induced. But the other is one that you provoke. And that's what these, you know, propelling questions do is asking the right question to tease your way to a different view of thinking. That's the that's the key. Again, I come, keep coming back to mindset and the mind the mentality um, uh, and again, this sort of getting away from the victim mentality to one of, of transformative. All right, let's transform the problem. Let's think about it differently. Let's let's add a temporal component rather than a speed component. And we don't use enough of those levers in, in a lot of our management criteria. Uh, if you ever listen to a Adam Morgan speech, he will bring up Lamont. He'll bring up uh, the Audi chief engineer. It is a fun, interesting story. Mm -hmm. You're going to bring up the next big idea because you've already brought it up. It's the concept of can if. What the heck is can if? Well, it's just this notion that rather than I can't and stopping at whatever the constraint you, you feel is there is saying I can, I could, I can if we did this, if we did that. So I'll give you an example that you know about if you go back to what was it, the, the mid-90s when all of the major um, music executives were convinced that the music business was dying, sales were going down, people were stealing our content. So they, their, their response was, let's go sue people who are downloading songs. And Steve Jobs said, no, we can if we change the way people buy music. Right. And it's just, it's a, it's a, it's an, it's a, such a wonderful transformation um, in mindset that that we can if we do this if we if we look at it differently and and I love that part of it. The opposite is the opposite is well, like you say, we're stuck. Uh, we could never do that. You know, we've always done it this way. You know, the boss won't let me change anything, and getting trapped. Do I get to be nosy for a minute? So you're a you're a very you you are a former successful entrepreneur, I think it's probably fair to say once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. Was there ever a, was there ever a time in your career where you said, I can't do this or we can't do this because? 
you know, sure, there there are plenty. Um, uh, and I'll tell you a story. I made a big play in, um, you probably remember years ago when fuel cells were going to save the world. And it's going to be the way you're going to have a fuel cell in your laptop and everything. And with a number of people, we went, we went all in on fuel cells. It just was obvious to us that that was the way to go. And after many, many years, um, it was like, no, that you just can't go there because batteries got better and electronics got lighter and, and less power consumptive. Now it'll come of eventually, but yeah, there, there are times you do run out of, of runway or whatever, or it's just not a good idea. Um, and, and that's one of the, the sort of, um, things I think a, a reader could take away from this is, no, there are some very real constraints. If you don't have, if your idea takes $20 million and you don't have access to $20 million, yeah, you probably can't do it. So, <laughs> um, so I think you have to take it with a grain of salt, like everything. Resourceful thinking. If I say the words resourceful thinking, does something positive come to mind or does something negative come to mind? I think it, you know, very positive comes to mind because it gets away from the resource being time, money, or whatever to can we get the resources we need? Maybe it's not time. Maybe we get time by doing something different. And so I, I like the transformation from resources to resourceful thinking because if we, if we come up with a really creative idea and, and a way to do it differently, then we'll get the resources we need. And going back to the Audi example, all right, let's get away from gas-powered engines and the restraints that Formula One had put on those. If we go to diesel, we can run longer miles. We can, you know, get out of, of having as many pit stops. That's resourceful thinking versus resources. Uh, by the way, as we jumped into the book, I wanted to make it, I should have made it clear that, the hard the hard copy, which I don't have, if you are a nerd on this book, I mean, if you just love this concept, the, the book is beautiful, from what I can tell. The physical book looks beautiful. Yes. I have the Kindle version, which is what I first read in 2017. I also have the Audible version. The Kindle version, believe it or not, the images, the graphics, the images are exceptional. How they pulled that off in Kindle, I don't know how. They are marketing people. However, I shouldn't say however, on the on the uh, Audible version, they did what a lot of management writers don't do. If you have a you have a management concept that's high in visual frameworks, there there's no PDF. Well, guess what? These guys have about a 32, 30 page PDF that you can download with the audio version. So I just want to make it very, very clear that. Hey, there are some exceptional images. Well, the reason I bring this up on the images and the frameworks is there is a two by two matrix. Hey, we couldn't have a we couldn't have a consulting book without a two by two matrix. But exactly. But they have a, a, a map, a two by two on resources, and we'll let the readers dig in. But there is a delineation between resources and resource, resourceful thinking. So when it comes to dealing with a constraint and making a constraint beautiful, they say, we're not getting into resourceful thinking. You do have resources. You may not own them, but you may know people who do have those resources. And to me, he just kind of opens up a door of, oh, 
I didn't think about that. And it even goes back to can if we could do this if maybe we went to a vendor or a customer who could gain from this. So the, the section on resources versus resourceful thinking, it's an interesting big idea in the book. Absolutely. It's a great one. And I'll give you an example from one of my clients years ago. Um, They distributed through small um, mom and pop shops. And and so the constraint was these people don't know how to grow. And my client, we set up corporate universities for those businesses. And he sent his resources out into the community to help those people grow their business, not his business grow their business because they knew as a second order effect, they were going to buy more of his product. So it's how can we tap into other resources that are available to us? And I think that's a great example. Thing I get frustrated with, and by the way, there is a flip side of the coin on resources. You can have too many. I work with a lot of small businesses, mainly, I think my largest is a little over a hundred million, but most are well below 75 million. And Willie, I cringe when we have either a big year, a breakout year. And do you know why I cringe? You've been by the, yep. you've been there before. Yep. Why? What is the yep. downfall of having a great year, especially a great cash flow year? What's the downfall? You start believing your press releases and thinking it's easy. And, you know, you, you, I'll give you an example here locally of, of someone who had a fantastic two year run and gave all of his senior executives Teslas. And that's coming home to roost now that they can't afford to keep doing those things. And so you, you, I think it's you, you, again, you start to believe your, your own press releases. You, you start to not have that edge of not having the resources and not having to go get it. We probably have some economists that listen to this show. I know at least one whom we both love and adore. Uh, we think the world of him. He's incredibly smart. He has a podcast. He knows what this is. It's called the resource curse. It yep. comes from economics. And I'm not an economist, but from what I remember, countries who have the most uh, resources, natural resources, they're not always the highest in GMP. They may not be the wealthiest of all nations. Nope. And if you use that as a construct in business, going back to where you have a great year, I can think of businesses where we've had great years. We start hiring some people yep. we maybe don't need, or we hire that new CXO we really need that person or we hire a whole new department. And then it's not until a few years later, when we have a downturn, we have to start letting go Deadwood. And so right. again, there is a flip side of the coin. We're really talking about the organizations that have very, very limited resources. But again, the authors are opening up the door to ideas of where we can find those limited resources where otherwise we might have this but we can't because we just, we don't the money. Right. Exactly. And, and we've, we've seen the cautionary tales in venture capital and private equity where they put too much money into to ideas that are untested or can't absorb it fast enough. And, and that's, that can be just as problematic as, as not having enough. 
So I, I don't know who you are. Are you Siskel and I'm Ebert or am I Ebert and you Siskel? We need to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down on the book. Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down? Well, I'm definitely a thumbs up uh, with the cautions we've talked about. But it's, I think it's a great read and a, and a great um, resource for people to, to to think through. Again, I think the ideas are great. And some of these, again, I said earlier, some of these may sound like common sense. For example, ask propelling questions like, duh. But yeah. if you look at the types of questions they bring up in the context of these constraints, it's like, this is genius type mm-hmm. questions. So, yeah, that's one of their big ideas. It's one of the paths toward making a constraint beautiful. But again, the context, the ideas that they bring up around those, the, there's really seven big ideas uh, in the book. We we hit on five. So I give it a thumbs up, the ideas. I'll go back to what I said earlier. Is this a book that a high dopamine CEO. And again, we're, I'm not disparaging those types of CEOs. They're the ones who write us big checks, those of us in the consulting industry. But I would say that people, some other people I, I thought about this long and hard, who would read this book? You mentioned this a few minutes ago. Project managers, in my opinion, if you were a project manager or a project management, or some businesses have process managers, this is a brilliant read. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. And and I want to go back to something you said. The you know people who dismiss this as common sense, and we've heard that about the theory of constraints and about systems thinking. Well, that's all just common sense. But I would remind the listeners. I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said, "Common sense is a very uncommon commodity." Yes, because we don't use it often enough. Good, right? good one, good one. I'm trying to think of other people who would read this book. This is getting outside my comfort level, my cover zone. But I think those who work in public policy, I think this would be a great book. And by the way, I'm going back to the Taiwan example. Uh, Again, if you listened or read the book, the section on Taiwan, which is about four pages, is excellent. So people in public policy, uh, anyone who works in strategy. Now, big businesses who have strategy arms, again, this is going to be uh, excellent material. And I think it goes without saying anyone who works in the marketing and advertising space, who is in the yep. building brands, uh, building big brands, going up against challengers, uh, being a challenger brand. Well, and, and they won't like it, um, <laughs> but not for profits. They tend not <sighs> to like these types of books, but talk about organizations that have real constraints is um, you know, they're often their funding is constrained and it's it's problematic and lumpy. I, I recommend this book to some of my not-for-profit um, friends be, just for that, just to get creative about not getting stuck in the rut and doing it the way we've always done it. Again, this if, if, if I worked with these authors, I would have on their website, I think their website is eatbigfish.com, these guys are good speakers. These guys, they're easy yeah. to listen to. I would I would just steal the way Masterclass, Masterclass does a great job at the, I mean, it is definitely edutainment. I would do a Masterclass on this book. And for the people who don't want to wade through the 277 pages, 
they're going to love this. And I, I may just nudge them on LinkedIn. It's like, do a, do a master class on this book. So yeah, I could absolutely foresee one. I think that's a great idea. Okay. Before we wrap up a couple of personal questions, you are, by the way, oh, by the, I don't know if I've told you this. No, I think I have. I think I emailed you this. You are, our interview we did in 2023 is the number one, it's the most downloaded show of our 200 some odd episodes we've done. The interview we did is number one. And it's fascinating because I kept saying, man, First weekend was incredible, but it's like each week I get, you just kept going up, going up, going up, going up the charts. And right now you are, you are your number one, but simple complexity is not your only book. Tell me about your other book. Yeah. So first, Mark, thank you so much for, you know, all you've done for simple complexity and and it's just a delight and, and thank you for that honor um, but the the second book <laughs> will not will 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 not uh, be at all linear to what anybody who's read any of my other stuff or, or listened to my and it's really a, a book from the heart. It's called Estimated Time of Departure: um, How I Talked My Parents to Death, a Love Story, and it just came from my being named executor of my parents' estate and starting to work with them on their end of life. Even they were young, I was young. And as I went on that journey, you know, I'm a lifelong learner to try to understand about death. I was appalled and shocked that here's a something that 100% of the population of this planet share, and yet we don't talk about it at all. And, and nobody wants to talk about it, and no one is particularly good at at preparing for it. And so I um, I, I went through that with my parents, tried to educate myself on it, and and everywhere I went, people said, you should write a book. We need, we need more people who will do this sort of thing. So I did. And, and, um, it was a, it was just a great, um, great experience. And I'll, I'll share one anecdote with you and the, and the audience. And that is as I went on that journey, I talked to death doulas and end of care physicians and, um, hospice workers and, and all kinds of people. And one was a philosopher or a historian who studied philosophy of philosophies of death around the world. And she shared with me an anecdote that stays with me to this day. And that's that, that the, there's an African tradition that says, if when you die, the physical death is just the first manifestation and you don't truly die until the last person on earth speaks your name or thinks about you. And that just enlightened my journey that and I think about that every day and and having just said that my parents are sitting right here with me because I just thought of them again and I can see them in my mind's eye in this discussion and so I I, I encourage folks to go out get my book but if even if you don't think about um think about it it's, it's just a liberating time a lot of people are scared of it don't be it, it yes it's sad yes it's hard but it is really cathartic. When I pick up a new book, first page, I start asking myself, has this book been written before? And I think you know what I mean by that. Obviously, it's, it's you know, it's, it's a new book, but has something similar to it been written? And that book of yours, 
I I would say it it's it's in a class of its own. I I don't know of anyone who's written quite closely what you have put into the words. Well, you're you're nice to say that. And, and what's interesting is the the whole intent of the book. When I pitched it to my publisher, we were going to have the story, and then experts that I traveled with and did my research with, and we were going to add at the end of each chapter and and sort of um, story. What what did the experts and in, in estate planners and and doctors say, et cetera? And and when they read the story, they said exactly the same thing you did: is don't touch a thing, don't add anything, just tell the story. There are plenty of books on how to think about estate planning or your health or the biology and, and medicines, but don't don't mess it up. Just tell the story. And and I think I told you that uh, we're hopeful. I've I've gotten the script out to a couple of filmmakers, and we'll see where it goes. What have you been reading lately that you find very interesting and has been hard, hard, hard to put down? Okay, I I, I knew you were going to ask that, and so how did you guess? How did you figure that um, out? I, and and I, I'm fascinated by it. It's the the coming wave by Mustafa Suleiman. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No. Um, but he was the founder of DeepMind and Inflection AI, and he talks about the coming revolution of AI and, um, you know, biology. Um, uh, and, and just, it, it's really very, very cool. Um, so I think you'd like that a lot, but I'm like you, I also always have a stack of books <laughs> by my bedside. I'm going back and rereading. I don't know if you remember upstream by Dan Heath, um, very similar to this is so, you know, kind of the opposite of the, the constraints It's looking upstream to see if you can predict where those, constraints are going to come from. Uh, him and his brother are excellent. There was a while, maybe over a five, six year period where I would re-listen to made to stick because it's just, it's great. It's great writing. It is excellent writing. Uh, I have not, you know, that one you mentioned, I've not read that one. Okay. So yes, yeah, Dan Heath, by, it's called Upstream by Dan Heath. I will just add that I just wrapped up the old lion. Now on my rating system, I gave it a three out of a five. If you know nothing about Teddy Roosevelt, I'd say this is a good starting point, but one of my all time favorite books, fiction, what a Pulitzer, his last name is Sharer. I can't remember the, the first name. He wrote the book Killer Angels and mm -hmm. it's Gettysburg and the, it's one of the few movies where the movie, they got it right. In fact, the movie is exceptional. It's it's one of the few movies where it didn't make me mad. Uh, I actually watched the movie first, then read the book. I'm thinking, oh my gosh. It's like, did he write a book based on the movie? But no, the, the book came first. Well, it turns out that that author has a son. His name is mm -hmm. Jeff Scherer. Hope I'm saying his last name correctly. And he's written several books that's historical fiction. And one of them is The Old Lion. Now, I have read more books on Teddy Roosevelt than any other leader that I can think of. And by the way, my I used to tell people, if you want to get interested or start reading Roosevelt, Lion's Pride is my go-to book. Yes. It is I love, love, love yeah. that book. I also just like reading some of his speeches. His speeches mm -hmm. uh, are 
I mean, they're politically incorrect <laughs> for the most part, <laughs> but they are, they're good. But yep. this book is called the old lion and I wasn't wowed, but I gave it a three just because of I've read too much about Roosevelt. But I think if you've never read <laughs> Roosevelt before, I'd say this is a very interesting read. So that's what mm -hmm. I've been reading. Well, and I also I can't thank you enough for I can't believe that in all my journeys I hadn't, you know, seen this. But what a what a great, you know, um, addition. Could you say what uh, can you say the book that you just held yes, up? Scoring a Hole in One um, by Dr. Edward Martin Baker. And it's just a terrific addition to the to, he did a lot of work with Peter Senge and and um, and. Um, and and Deming, uh, not and, Peter Singing, um, W. Edwards Deming, and um, just brings a lot of the systems thinking out that a lot of people miss in Deming. Willie, this was fun. I enjoy doing these book club style conversations. It's fun getting to do it with a, another author, and I do hope we get yeah. to do this again. Absolutely, Mark. Thank you so much for your time. You are listening to. CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Again, I want to thank Willie Donaldson for joining the conversation. There's no question about the ideas and concepts in this book will application lead to success on every single occurrence when we run into a constraint. Of course not, but we will have some new questions or a new systematic approach to dealing with these constraints. If you are unsure about buying the book, there is a link to my favorite presentation by Adam Morgan on this book. It's wherever you listen to the show. Click the link, listen to it, and then decide if reading the book adds value to what you've learned. We need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.